It was one of those days at the end of February when the wind shows the temperature up from minus 8 to plus 12. 24 hours of unexpected rain had washed away the snow which had been lying around for three or four weeks, making a paradise of the hills around the city and a complete hell of its centre. But that was over. A breath of spring lay over the city now and people hurried through the streets with new energy in their bodies towards destinations they could only guess at. The office seemed unusually deserted on a day like this. The square room with its big desk and a phone with a nearly empty filing cabinets was like a little isolated corner of the universe, a place where they stash forgotten souls, people whose names nobody remembers anymore. I'd had one call all day from an old lady who'd wanted me to find her poodle. I'd said I was allergic to dogs, especially poodles. She'd sniffed and hung up. That's how I am. Don't sell myself cheap. It was almost three when I heard somebody outside the waiting room door. I was half asleep in my chair and the sound made me start. I swung my legs to the floor, got up and opened the door between the two rooms. <laughs> This is Yarncast, a podcast series produced by Urbanomic during our residency upstairs at Bergen Kunsthal. I'm Robin Mackay, the director of Urbanomic, and I'm here in Bergen for two weeks with the artist Paul Cheney, exploring the concept, theory, and practice of plots and plotting. So I'm in the Strand Hotel in Bergen, on Strandcoin, an old street that runs beside the fish market and the harbour, and which is where you'll find the office of private detective Vagvjörn, created by best-selling Norwegian novelist and playwright Gunnar Stolzen in 1977. Stolzen has published 17 Vagvjörn novels to date, they're bestsellers here in Norway, and they've been translated into English in several other languages. And Stolzen is recognised today as one of the major figures of Nordic noir. The popularity of Vagvjörn and his close links to the city of Bergen can be gauged by the fact that the hotel here on Strandcoin not only features a statue of the detective in its doorway, but also a Vagvjörn bar, where I'm sitting right now. Gunnar Stolzen was born in Bergen in 1947 and lives here to this day, and the city has a powerful presence in his novels. I spoke with him earlier today at the Kunsthal about the interplay of plot and sight in his writing. Enjoy the show. So we're here in the Kunsthalle with the snow that's just begun to fall, swirling around us. And I'm here with Gunnar Stolzen, creator of Vagvjörn. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us for this episode of the Yarncast. Thank you for the invitation. Let's start with your career now. There have been 16 Vagvjörn novels to date, but they're not your only works. 
Uh, to date, it's uh, 17, uh, 17 novels about Valveum and two collection of short stories. So it's 19 books about mm -hmm. Valveum. And then I made uh, seven uh, graphic novels about him. Uh, and uh, he, there's been some of the radio, some of the novels have been uh, dramatized for the radio, and I also did an adaptation for one of the novels for theater. And Twelve of the novels are made into film. But uh, in addition to the books about Valveum, I've uh, written uh, four other crime novels. Uh, I've uh, written uh, a big trilogy in the late nineties about all. Uh, the 20th century in Belgium, in Europe, in, uh, Nor in uh, Norway. It takes place from the 1st of January 1900 till the 31st of December 1999. Mm. It starts with a murder on the first page which is solved on the last pages of the oh. last book. can also be defined as a big uh, detective novel. And um, then I've written three books for uh, young readers uh, between 8 and 13 uh, of age more like the adventure stories of Gilles Verne and uh, mm. Stevenson, that sort of uh, treasure hunt in Africa uh, and adventure. And then I've done quite a lot of uh, pieces for the theatre, uh, adaptions and original stuff. So it's safe to say it's been a fairly prolific writing career. <laughs> yeah, I started, uh, I decided to be a writer uh, if I could manage it when I was around 17 years and from that on I've written all the time. Not every day but uh, I've always been writing on a new book or a new play since I was 17 years old and now I'm 67. And was it always crime fiction that you had in your sights? Was that a genre that you enjoyed reading when you were that age? I enjoyed very much reading uh, crime fiction, but to me it looked very difficult to write crime fiction myself, not at least because of the more complicated plots. I, I was afraid that it was uh, not my gift to uh, create plots like that. So when I started to write, I was more um, a prose writer. I was in, uh, inspired by the American writer Jack Kerouac that I made a thesis about at the university when I studied English uh, major there. And I um, wrote perhaps in the style of Knut Hamsun, the big Norwegian uh, writer. So I, I wanted to be a so-called serious uh, modern writer. And I published two books, the first when I was 22, the uh, second when I was 24. But then there was a period when I wrote books that nobody wanted to publish. I wrote uh, at least one novel and one collection of short stories. And I started on a huge novel that I never finished. And that was when I was starting to think of uh, trying to write a crime novel. And I must say that was inspired by the two Swedish writers, Sjöval and Wale, which made a, a big difference in the history of crime fiction when they wrote the 10 books about Martin Beck from 1965 to 1975. Because what they showed us young writers at that point was that crime fictions not had to be conservative uh, sort of entertainment literature, some sort of law and order uh, mm. literature. It could also be a literature that took a very critical view at the society they lived in, the society uh, we live in, the problems around us. 
Uh, and when I read Shivala Malu, I discovered too that there were some some uh, forerunners to them. There was uh, Raymond Chandler, Ross McDonnell in the United States, especially I think, and some other writers that uh, perhaps were a bit more modern than uh, well Agatha Christie in her style of writing. So uh, I think that when when I and couple of other writers of my generation started to write crime fiction in the middle of the uh, 70s. It was very much the honor of Cheval uh, and Waller that we did that. So right at the beginning you were already conscious that the received idea of genre fiction as a kind of pulp popular uh, media and the idea that um, books that rely on plot and intrigue are a kind of poor relation to literary works was something that could be overcome and that there was more to this genre than met the eye. Yeah, I saw that when you write uh, crime fiction you can at least hope to have a bigger audience than if you write uh, serious uh, literature because there is this entertainment element in it. And I think that if you have something important to to tell uh, the readers, why not tell it to uh, fifty thousand instead of five hundred? So I definitely choose a popular genre uh, to make what I want to tell uh, to to reach a bigger audience, a bit more readers uh, through that. Uh, and I even today I always think about. The entertainment element, the mystery element. When I wrote write a new uh, detective novel, mm, but but I but I have also uh, all the time in in uh, mind uh, that there is something I want to tell about. Uh, it could be a special theme in some of my novels. It's like uh, uh, ecology. It's uh, it's um, uh, racism. It's uh, political uh, differences, it's social differences, it's of course in uh, modern society it's a drug business and who are behind the drug business, who mm. earns the money uh, on drug business. Uh, so there are a lot of themes that to me are inspired from reading newspapers or listening to news in the radio or looking at in the television. Uh, so so uh, what is in people's minds uh, in their everyday is what give me ideas to the background of a new detective story. Mm. And then I create of course a plot that in my best books you can see that the plot is also part of the theme that I want to uh, tell but in some of the books you can perhaps part it uh, in two and say that okay there is the plot element and that is the theme. Um, because there was, there is, uh, I don't know if you know the name, Chartan Flugster, it's one of the really big Norwegian writers today. He he um, has been uh, writing <coughs> some, some uh, uh, articles and essays about uh, crime fiction uh, back in the 70s and uh, 80s and he always stressed that uh, modern crime fiction is a mirror to the society we live in. And he uh, prophesied uh, when he wrote the first of this article, I think it must have been around 75, 74, he prophesied that now that we had found 
oil in the North Sea that will make an influence on Norwegian uh, crime fiction because right. now we will have hard-boiled West Coast American mm. uh, crime fiction in Norway yeah. too and that really was uh, true some mm. very few years after that. That came with the money. Yeah, came with the money and, and of course there was a lot in the, in, the, in, the, in the first period there were a lot of American business people in Norway so as a, a city as uh, Stavanger who was the big oil city in Norway changed totally from being a pietistic uh, Christian city with a lo lot of churches and uh, small Christian houses into being an international uh, city with uh, prostitution with um, illegal uh, illegal uh, gambling houses mm -hmm. with a lot of, of business that never had been there before at least not in uh, so so big so I wrote one of my Valgrim novels uh, called Kvinnen i Kjøleskap and a woman in the woman in the fridge, woman in the fridge. Yeah. Uh, that almost all the action takes place in Stavanger just mm. to to make a picture of that mm. change in Norwegian society and that was published in 81 I think so there's an actual mutation of the form and content which is a reflection of the the end of innocence of a whole society yeah you can uh, you can say that and uh, and um, I read uh, one of my uh, teachers to say that uh, in uh, crime fiction is uh, Ross MacDonald mm. who wrote in the tradition of Raymond Chandler um, and he wasn't such a big literary poet as Chandler was but he, he, he wrote some very good stories and very good plots that could give uh, a reader a very good understanding of uh, society in uh, United States in the 50s and the 60s and I thought I will try to do something like that. My first uh, two and uh, number four of my crime novels, they had uh, police officers as detectives. Mm. So that were, were police procedurals. Um, but I found that police work are in reality rather dull work, I think. And it was after some uh, two books, I found it rather dull to write about uh, police officers. So I, I wanted to, to um, do an experiment and try to transform this uh, private detective from Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, Ross MacDonald into Norwegian society in the 70s. So that was why I created Valg But I, I tried to make him uh, everyday Norwegian. He has a normal background. He is not a superhero. He's not more intelligent really than uh, most of us but he has some sort of talent in making people talk he's a social worker by origin he worked in an office to take care of children who have trouble in their mm. life and uh, and had stopped working there had quit that and then he opened his own uh, office as a private detective in Norway and at that moment you almost didn't have any private detectives in Norway. There were a, a, a married couple in Oslo who were the only one that were known. And they were doing most, mostly uh, the kind of work that Philip Marlowe and Valgrim don't take with uh, marriages uh, mm. and uh, people going visiting uh, somebody they shouldn't visit and yeah. so on. So it, I was very unsure if it was possible to transform this sort of character to uh, Norway in the 70s but it was a big success uh, no critics had anything to say about this character that he is that he is unbelievable and uh, the readers loved him so uh, after finishing one idea that I had about this couple of police officers that I've been writing about 
Then I uh, followed up with, up till now, 16 new novels about uh, Wagner. And uh, my first books were translated into English, German, Russian uh, already in the 80s, in 86, 87. Uh, and I have watched this wave of Nordic uh, uh, noir going at first to Germany, uh, then to France, uh, and then after year 2000 it went to Italy, Spain, uh, and uh, UK and uh, United States. The cement lid had been screwed tight over the city and it was abnormally dark. The rain would come soon now. I walked quickly down to Strandkajen and into the building where my office sits when I'm not there. When I went past the cafeteria on the second floor, a strong smell of coffee assaulted my nose, but I didn't fall for it and kept going. I let myself into the office. It smelled of dry radiator air, old dust, abandonment, and it was like a tomb. Hello, Grave. Here comes the body, I said. But nobody answered, not even the echo of my own voice. I took off my jacket and sat behind the desk, swiveled the chair and looked through the window. An angelic hand had splashed a handful of water against the pane. It was pitch black outside now. The cars of Bryggen had their headlights on, as if the drivers had forgotten to turn them off after the Eidsvog tunnel. I could see the grocers down at the market hurriedly stretching tarpaulins across their stands, people scurrying to shelter with their umbrellas on guard. Then the sky split down the middle. Lightning ripped the darkness. The thunder sounded as if Mount Fleuyen and Ulriken had collided and now were exploding into thousands of fragments. The thunder rumbled and rolled between the mountains like boulders. An invisible hand dashed a flock of chalk-white gulls against Ask Island, and they protested loudly as they vainly tried to break with their wings. A pigeon with black-button eyes landed on a cornice outside my window and hurried into the corner where it stood with its head cocked and waited for the voice of doom to fall silent and the wet to be separated from the chaff. And then the rain came. You're listening to Urbanomics Yarncast in association with Bergen Kunsthal. This is Gunnar Stolson, creator of Norwegian noir detective Valbjörn, talking to us about the nature of crime writing, plotting, and about his hometown of Bergen. For more information on our project here in Bergen, you can visit our blog, urbanomic.com slash yarnwork, and join us on Twitter with hashtag yarncast. Be sure to check back soon for the next episode. Now back to the show. If we can say the essential armature of a detective story is uh, a plot concerning the uncovering of knowledge, the construction of the truth, it seems that every fictional detective marks themselves out through a particular way of approaching this process of discovery, a certain way of approaching a problem and tracing out its plot. How would you characterise Wurm's particular approach to his cases? Yeah, 
As Vagrim is a private detective working for himself, of course he cannot use uh, forensics or whatever that uh, police uh, can use. Um, so he uses what his uh, education gives him, and what his uh, personal uh, psychology gives him. He is social worker, yeah. educated as a social worker, mm. and a social worker should be a good listener. Mm. Uh, if he, if they meet people who have trouble, they sit down with them yeah. and they talk with them, and these yeah. people talk to them. There's a lot of dialogue in the books. Yes, yeah. and that is the method of mm. Vagrim, is to uh, make people speak, mm. make people talk, and tell after a while about their lives and the problems, and of course there is a crime involved. Um, in some books there's a disappearance uh, and it takes some time before it is a murder. And I think in one of my books it takes 200 uh, pages before you find a body. And in some other books of course there is a murder early in the book, but to make it believable with a private detective doing this sort of work, there's always something that happened 20 years before, 25 years before, there's something in, in where, that the police didn't bother. Yeah. That is a case that the police uh, have, uh, and, and that's uh, history for them. And that is the kind of work that Valveon can go back and try to find something about that old case. And through that, of course, he discovers something that mm. lead to yeah. uh, the, the solution of the the actual time. So, so in almost all Vagrim uh, novels, uh, there are you can see at least two time uh, levels. There is the present, and it is the past. And um, in all crime fiction, most people lie. So uh, one of Vagrim's uh, uh, talent should also be to look behind the lies. Mm. Uh, who are lying to me? What? Why are they lying? What are they hiding from me? Mm. So, so, and uh, I'm, I'm not a. Uh, the Vagrim is not an action hero. He, hero. He don't uh, runs around and knocking down people, and he, he don't use much violence himself. He's not. He he's, has to defend himself. He is a, a psychologist, uh, and he he talks to people and listen to them, and through that he solves. Uh, mostly the mysteries. Incidentally, this background in social work, that's not something that you share with him, that's something you invented. That's not something in your own life, no? No, no that's right. Okay. When I when I created uh, Vagrim back in 76, I was thinking a lot about how should I build this character. And the um, American detectives like Philip Marlowe, uh, Lou Archer, they had always worked for the police or for the district attorney and uh, so they had background from doing police work. So I, I thought it would be too much of a copy of uh, Chandler Rosmontal if I have the same background from it. So I just asked myself what should the background be for a man that would open an office for a private detective uh, in Norway in the 70s. And I, I was looking at the social workers especially people who are in the care of children and who are out in the streets looking for those children mm. who have run from their home or are into the drug milieu. or mm. they, So they are very much doing some sort of police work, trying to find these uh, kids. And perhaps they will have to leave Bergen and go to another Norwegian city, going to Copenhagen, which was a center of drug uh, mm. business in Scandinavia for a period. 
So uh, that would give him a believable background uh, for doing that sort of police work. And, and as he had worked in the care of children, he would also have to have a lot of, of communication with the police because the, uh, the police are often involved uh, in such cases too, of course. So I thought that was uh, the background I would uh, give him. Faces without names, faces that hadn't left anything behind but empty whiskey bottles and had disappeared when the party was over. I looked at her face. She was holed up in there somewhere, a long way back, the young girl of 20 or 30 years ago, the child who'd skipped up and down an alley, who'd bounced a ball against green-painted wooden walls along with other little girls, but who later had kissed and hugged many too many and never the right ones. But she was still holed up in there, if the booze hadn't washed her away, hadn't washed her up on a faraway beach where you'd never find her, Hildur Pedersen from Bergen. For some reason I thought of 1946. 1946, that was the sort of beginning for all of us. The war was over, but the city was still paralyzed. It wasn't until the 50s that it rose out of the ashes, set square high-rises on its crooked spine and let the past fall into ruins. The America-bound boats gave up sailing and they built Flesland Airport. The Luxembourg ferry was shut down and they built a bridge over Pudefjord. They dug holes through the mountains and built housing developments where there had been farms and forests and marshlands. But that hadn't begun in 1946. It was still like the 30s then. Those who were already grown up during the war spat on their fists and started again. The old died away like the old houses they lived in and there was no end to the possibilities for us who were still young. 1946 four digits that contain a long-dead past, streets that are gone, houses that have fallen down, houses that have been demolished, people long since dead and dug up again, ships that have stopped sailing and trolleys that have been scrapped. 1946 and the beginning of all this. Where were you in 1946? I said to Hildur Pedersen. In 1946? Why do you want to know? Are you nuts? Who the hell remembers where he was in 1946? Can't you just shut up for a while? I nodded. I could shut up for a while. And as you say, that background and that understanding that he has from that previous career really gives the stories this kind of multi-layered structure. I certainly noted in all of the English translations I read that in each case there's always a kind of traumatic spiral so that the crime scene and the investigation are expressions of trauma often suffered by parents passed down from one person to another in a certain way and then at another at even deeper level these personal traumas often indicate a wider social story so, for instance, the, there's a passage in um, Yours Until Death where Wurm and one of the protagonists, Vega, seem to address each other as personifications of certain political compromises or existential choices which represent a kind of process of capitulation to capitalism or to neoliberalism. Uh, and then this passage in the following chapter, 
where everything goes back to 1946 so that the case itself becomes in some way a kind of repercussion or echo of a, a national trauma. I wonder how these simultaneous levels of trauma from the immediate violence of the crime scene to this slow violence of the social are knitted together. And for you, obviously, the social story is primary, but then at the same time, the surface narrative is what's necessary to make the, the plot compelling and to pull the reader along. Yeah. It must be a feat of craft to, to bring those things together and to make them operate these different speeds within the same text. Yeah, of course, that's uh, what I try to do from uh, book to book. Um, and um, my, my father, he was a teacher in history. So since I was a kid, I was very interested in history and development from period to period. And as a grown-up and as a writer, I has of course uh, studied that, and I also see how much these changes in society uh, also make changes in the way people live, and then the way people live is also go into their uh, their minds in some sort of uh, way. I feel that uh, in in my books uh, there are never people that are real really evil. They are all victims of the society or the milieu they are grown up, of their parents. And I think this is the same sort of uh, philosophy that uh, is in uh, the mind of uh, Valveum and a typical social worker, because a social worker will always try to explain why did this man or this woman do such an evil action. And, and, and you can see it in, in, even in, in contemporary crime stories in newspapers. And you can see in, in Norway, of course, we have this terrible massacre in uh, 2011, uh, when um, many people said, this, this guy, he must be absolutely evil. Uh, and other people thought, oh, no, it's a uh, political action he is doing. Uh, and why has he been? Uh, such a mon- why he, he is perhaps some sort of monster but uh, what is the processes that has made him into a monster mm-hmm. so uh, many people in Norway will have this social worker attitude to it that they will try to explain why is it possible that one single guy could do such a horrible uh, act and what uh, I think about this is that I have never met uh, really evil uh, people, and if they are really evil people, I think th- that some they have some sort of brain uh, uh, illness or something like that. So they can be mentally ill, like psychopaths and people who do really horrible things. But if they are born evil, they are born with some sort of disease in their head, I think. And, and that is not many. The most people who do crimes do it from some or, some or another reason. And that reason is a result of their life, their milieu, the society around them, the political system, perhaps. I happened to be in uh, Oslo the week after the Breivik massacre, and it was really extraordinary to see a whole society in in shock and I was very impressed at that time at the attitude being shown in the public statements of Norwegian politicians which had that kind of understanding attitude rather than condemnation of evil it really seems to be a a national characteristic 
Yeah, I, I think we had some very wise uh, politicians at that moment, mm. and also I think they reflect. Um, uh, and it's not it's not by accident. I think that they were from the Labour Party because the Labour Party is the symbol of the welfare society in mm. Norway and the modern Norwegian society with its social democracy and the welfare society. And even today, the Conservative Party is almost a social democratic party. Mm. So, so there are not big differences in uh, in. Uh, in Norwegian politics uh, at all. Still in Norway, we have changed a bit after we found the oil, but still there is some element of, of social uh, solidarity in, mm. uh, in uh, Norway that, uh, and, and in Scandinavia. You know, this is the Scandinavian model. In terms of the, the actual craft of writing and plotting and making all of these different temporalities stitch together and flow together and giving the narrative that depth. Is that something that you've had to work very hard to be able to uh, handle? Not really. I, I hope this is one of my talents as a writer, uh, because it, it comes more or less natural to me. Uh, when I sit down, start to write, I make always, I make a, a sketch of the plot before I start uh, writing. So I, I know where to begin, I know where to end. But there was a lot of plotting to do with it to mm -hmm. get to that end. <clears throat> when and you say a sketch, you mean a kind of schematic yeah, set of steps? Uh, yeah, yeah, one, two pages written down with my hand mm. with uh, point one that takes place, one, two, point two, point three, and arrows and uh, circles and uh, a list of characters. And uh, so uh, that really only I can really understand it. But it's some sort of, it is like a, a synopsis for the whole, uh, the whole book. Uh, but when I start to write, and especially when the characters are created and I start to live, then uh, I have to do changes because I have a character called A or B, and when I give him or her a name and a background and they grows between my fingers when I write, uh, then suddenly I see that they are a bit uh, different from what I originally think thought. And then, of course, oh, I have to change the plot because they couldn't do what I was mm. thinking that uh, they should do. So I do a lot of changes like that uh, when I write and I get new ideas. Um, not at least I get a, a lot of ideas to have to do with the plot, to make the plot more complicated. When I originally had a line going from A to B like this, uh, suddenly I, I come here and see, well, if this character knew that character here, of course there could be uh, some sort of connections there, and then I have to go back and, and rewrite it. And even when it's finished, and I see this is the end of the book, but there is some something that uh, lacks to understand all that, and then I have to go back in the script and write the chapter here, some lines here, change perhaps a little, a little bit of one character, do some, some alterations in the, in the work before I send it to my editor and get it back with more comments mm -hmm. and I uh, have to rework it even more. But, uh, but uh, that is the usual work, of course, of a, of a writer with his uh, mm -hmm. editor. Many of the Wagwema books have been translated to the screen and although I've enjoyed the films that I've seen, I felt there was quite a huge gap between the feeling and the style of your writing and that of the films. 
what was your personal experience of this conversion of the story from page to screen? I, uh, I was uh, not directly involved in the film productions, but I had a very good dialogue with the creators um, all the time. Uh, and, and I understood very early that they were thinking about quite another way of telling a story than I was used to in my novels. And um, as you have observed in my novels, there is a lot of dialogue, there are people thinking back, uh, the, the voice of the narrator who is the detective is very important and uh, in, when they make film the narrator is gone. There are, you will never hear the voice of Van Vuel except in the dialogue and uh, his dialogue has changed quite a bit. What is special with Bergen is that people in Norway look at Bergen, people from Bergen as being very talkative, very quick, very witty. They have some sort of hard-boiled dialogue. Yeah. It's natural for mm. people from Bergen. And in the, in the films, uh, they uh, didn't stress that element much. And uh, uh, it is a pity that it's the policeman and uh, not Vagvim who get all the good lines. So <laughs> Vagvim is much more witty in the books than he is in the, in the films. Um, and in the film they uh, stressed more uh, the uh, action elements than, uh, and then the mystery and a more slow way of telling a story in, in my books and I, I quite uh, understood that uh, this is another way of telling a story and really to be honest I don't think that uh, a film will this, there isn't much you can tell in a film that you can't tell in a book. Mm. Uh, but of course you can make some very, very beautiful and very dramatic visual versions of it. But the, the book is always better than the, the film, mm. uh, in my opinion. And, um, and uh, I, I did an adaption of one of the books myself for the theatre. And, and then I was very much more close to the story in the book. But I, I created a new ending because that was uh, more natural in the theatre. So there was another murderer in a theatre version and it was in a book. Uh -huh. I think when I made a the film they had to create a Valguem that was a bit different from my Valguem. So in my in my head there was one Valguem in the books and one Valguem in the films and they mm. lived some sort of parallel uh, yeah. lives. <laughs> I climbed up and stood beside her, following her gaze. To the southwest, Kors Fjord cut its way through between Oestervoll and Sutra, where the Lia Tower rose up to a height of 1120 feet above sea level. In the northwest, on the other side of Nuros Vanne, lay the collection of houses at Burnes like a scar in the landscape along the narrow, elongated western side of Löfstaken and beyond that Lüderholm's highest point at 1300 feet. Behind the mountains the horizon could just be made out, a barely perceptible line between grey and white, somewhere far out in the moor of the open sea. Life is something you lose, she said in an undertone, bit by bit. Yes, I suppose so. Childhood, a distant memory, you're young and frisky, full of expectations of life, and then then suddenly that phase is over. You find low or you don't find it in all its various geeses. And before you know where you are, that's gone too. The children you bring into the world, she swallowed and blinked back the tears as though the wind had become too biting for her. Suddenly they've gone too. But life does go on, Sissel. 
she seemed not to hear me. There are those who would say life is something we build stone by stone until the day we die we have a complete edifice. I put it differently. The edifice is what is given to you when you're born, a beautiful edifice into which you are invited. But it's not long before they start to tear your fine edifice down, bit by bit, until at last there you sit, quite alone, on the empty plot. And some hoses, she added with sudden vehemence, are not even torn right down. They stand there forever, like incomplete lives. She turned abruptly and looked east, where the brown channel on the far side of the Hadanga fjord lay like a diminutive duvet between the mountains at Fusa. And there lies Folgefana Glacier, just as it has for thousands of years. It will never die. Oh, glaciers are like people. They come and go too. They just take a bit longer, that's all. Alongside the mechanics of the plot, there is a very strong atmosphere in the books, and that comes mostly from the incredibly vivid sense of Bergen. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, when I arrived here, there was a very powerful sense that I knew this place. Um, and obviously, you've lived here your whole life, so you really know the city, you know its history, um, you know its atmosphere. And there's something very interesting about crime fiction that often it is tied to a particular place like Sherlock Holmes' London. Are there particular stories that could only be told in Bergen, or is it simply because it's the place that you know best? Uh, the special. Uh atmosphere of uh, Bergen is that Bergen was the biggest city in Norway up till 1820, 1830. Uh, that was when Oslo passed in size. And in the medieval age, Bergen was the capital, more or less, in Norway. So we have um, a pride in uh, Bergen, uh, which you could recognize uh, when you when you meet people and you, you can see they are, they are very proud of uh, being from Bergen and living in Bergen uh, and there's always 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 a very strong opposition in, against Oslo and people from the east mm-hmm. the uh, yes but but there is a uh, clear element of self irony in that too because we know that today all the people who decides uh, all the power is in Oslo there are not much Poles left in you know, in Bergen, but Bergen was a society with a lot of merchants, uh, a lot of ship owners, uh, not so much industry. We, uh, the people who the working class in Bergen, many of them were sailors, mm. and they were people building ships. That was the biggest industry in Bergen, and then the otherwise uh, other people were doing some sort of uh, merchandise. Uh, there is the place of Bergen in the geography. Uh, which with the mountains close into which make it a very strong uh, Norwegian uh, city. When if, if you read about Bergen, living in UK or in France and Germany, you have this strong feeling of Norwegian nature too, because mm. the nature is so close to the city. Um, but but you have the social uh, differences, the, the the battle between the social classes. Uh, the rich people on the top 
that could be in most cities in all the world really so uh, and that is i think one of the the reasons for the international success of all crime fiction is that this is a genre that is recognizable in all over the world you can recognize these stories you can recognize these characters it's only the the place that uh, changes uh, but but I have always said that um, I'm very happy to have been born in Bang. I'm a first generation uh, Bangansa because my father come from another city and my mother from another city uh, so I was very happy to be born in Bergen because Bergen is the perfect uh, roman noir film noir place huh. in Norway because of the rain yeah. the atmosphere <laughs> it's the it's it's raining uh, 250 days a year um, and of course we have the the dark winter nights in uh, Norway many of my books takes place between September and April I think mm. um, and if I make one that takes place in the summer it just make the a contrast with a beautiful weather is it one of my novels uh, I don't think that's translated into English yet. Uh, it's called Bitter Flowers mm-hmm. and um, it takes place in June and July and it doesn't f- f- fall one drop of rain before in the very last sentence <laughs> then it starts to rain. And that is of course the contrast yeah. to the interaction. So in, and, uh, and what is special with Scandinavian crime fiction I think is that we have the nature so close so we will always find nature in our novels. You'll find that in Henning Mankel, you'll find that in in, uh, in uh, Stig Larsson, you'll find it in UNESCO, you'll find it in me, because you, you, the Norwegian cities are not big. We have, this is the second biggest city in Norway and we have around 250,000 people living here. Uh, and uh, where we sit now, we can see the mountains around the city, so the nature is present all the time. The influence of geological history is also evident. I mean, where we're sitting now was yeah. carved out by the ice. Yeah. So there's this kind of sense of uh, a history that goes deeper than human history as well. Yeah. When I, from time to time, I'm speaking about Bergen, then I always start with the ice, creating this uh, landscape. And you know, the mountains around Bergen is the geologists call it the the Bergen Bows, the Bergen Bows, because when you come with a Airplane, or you see them on the map, you can see they are they are formed like uh, a bow, a cold bow, yeah, 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 and and um, and then uh, we have the ocean coming in here, and uh, in originally it was water up here because the the glacier before it, the ice went all the way down, it was pressing the landscape down, and the sea level was higher, but then uh, for yeah. 10,000 years, 9,000 years ago, it more, was more or less uh, like this landscape. And and then people arrived here. So I, I like to write with long, um, the long lines of that too. I, in my in my trilogy, who really tells the story of Bergen in the old 20th century, I also have some chapters where I go back to telling about the ice and uh, what created the geological landscape. It's always difficult to say what is Nordic Noir, what is not Nordic Noir, but that is, I think, the the conflict between a modern welfare society where everybody wants to help each other and a crime taking place in this some sort of paradise Mm. uh, on earth. And also the, the beauty of the Norwegian landscape or the Nordic landscape with the fjords, the mountains, the glaciers uh, and so it's a, almost a romantic image 
uh, of the landscape and perfect welfare society and still there are trouble within this uh, frame mm. um, and I think that perhaps this this contrast between the beautiful nature and the welfare society and the crime is what is perhaps more special in Nordic crime fiction than you would find it in France and UK mm. in many other countries. So even in paradise there's always trouble? There's always a snake in paradise. After a week I could not control myself any longer. I rang Halleva and asked if there were any new angles on the case. Burden of proof, Valg. We have to have the package at the very minimum. They deny everything, of course. Will you get one of the women to testify against him? Can you present their financial accounts? It's an uphill struggle. Don't you think we've been there before, Valg? Bergen, 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 he quoted. Norway's biggest village. Doesn't matter where you go, home is uphill. Anything else? Not that I can think of. Well, then I have to sift my way through my piles of paper and see if I can strike gold. Have a very lively weekend, Valg. Celebrate with moderation. Thank you. Not a lot to celebrate, is there? No, you're right. I found a way down to street level and into what optimists call fresh air. January still hadn't relinquished its grip. I had a feeling that the whole town found itself in a kind of collective depression, brought on by the grey weather and the thermometer, a lethal alliance in this rain-laden town, kilometres and kilometres from all climate zones. Indeed, in a way, a climate zone in itself. On rare occasions, I wished I lived elsewhere. This was one of those. As far away as it was possible to go. But, as on most days, I didn't get any further than my office. My letterbox was empty. There were no messages on the answer machine. No one needed me. So that was Gunnar Stolzen. Many thanks to Gunnar for joining us for this episode. The readings from three English translations of uh, Stolzen's books, Cold Hearts, The Writing on the Wall, and Yours Until Death. Many thanks also to Bergen Kunsthal for hosting and supporting us, and especially director Martin Clark for initiating the project. Thanks to the staff at the Kunsthal for all their help and expertise. Thanks to Lee Gamble for the audio ident, and Cut Hands for the music. Yarncast is an urbanomic media production in association with Bergen Kunsthal. Thank you.